Downtown Productions in cooperation with Zone Radio presents Downtown, the podcast. From the historic Zone Radio studios, here's your host, Rich Kimball. Hey, welcome, welcome. It is indeed Downtown, the podcast. Episode number 283, brought to you every week by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. We have got a pair of terrific conversations for you this week on the podcast. A little bit later on, New York Times bestselling author David Baldacci returns to talk about his brand new book, The Edge. Up first, though, uh, a favorite here on the program, both on the podcast and on our radio show, the incredibly talented singer-songwriter Roseanne Cash. Uh, she and her talented husband, John Leventhal, starting a new record label, a new imprint called Rumble Strip Records. And the first release late last week, a special 30th anniversary remastered edition of her classic album, The Wheel. We had a great time talking with Roseanne about the, the new label and uh, everything that went into the making of that album, which came along at a, a crucial point in her life. She had gone through a divorce, had uh, left her record company, relocated from Nashville to New York. There was a lot going on, including in the process of making the album, falling in love with a man she would eventually marry, John Leventhal. They've been together now for 30-plus years. Let's give a listen. Her conversation with Roseanne Cash here on Downtown. Let's start with this. Why uh, Why did you and John decide to start your own label? It wasn't an instinct to, you know, be a, a mogul or a CEO. The reason is that I got back my masters from Sony, my master recordings that were these reversion clauses in my contracts that after 30 years or 35 years, I would start getting all of my masters back and own them. And honestly, Rich, I didn't, I didn't expect to feel um, what I felt when I owned my masters again. It was almost a spiritual experience, like, wow, this is mine again. And then um, it was kind of, you know, the next thought was, well, what do I want to do with them? And I can put them out. The wheel was never on vinyl. My album, The Wheel, was never on vinyl. So. John and I talked about just starting. We didn't want to run a record label, so we partnered with 30 Tigers, who knows how to run a record label, to you know start our own imprint, our own record label called Rumble Strip Records. And the first thing we're doing is is putting out a remastered um, version of The Wheel, 30th anniversary. Well, uh, that album has been such a favorite of mine, and I was thinking about this. And uh, it, it, I, I guess I never put it all together before. But at that time in my life, 30 years ago, there were three albums that I listened to constantly. The Wheel, uh, Steady On by Sean Colvin, and Mark Cohn's The Rainy Season. And I realized what the connection is, and it's it's John Leventhal. It's all John Leventhal. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's my connection, too. It's all John Leventhal all the time. <laughs> Well, this album came at such a, a, a challenging, I think it's safe to say, a time in your life. You would you would recorded interiors that got, and I love the album, it got such great critical acclaim, but the record company just uh, shook their head and uh, you had made the decision to, uh, to separate from the Nashville division and to go to New York. You had gone through a divorce and moved to New York as well. And so uh, here you were wondering which direction your life would go in so many ways. 
Yeah, boy, it was a tumultuous time to say the very least. And that you know, I got transferred to the New York division of the label after interior after I delivered interiors to um Nashville because they didn't want it. Like you said, they just kind of shook their head and said, We can't do anything with this. And, you know, I was slightly vindicated when it got nominated for a Grammy in the folk category. Um, I did lose to John Prine, which was entirely appropriate. I would have been embarrassed to win against <laughs> John Prine. <laughs> Um, but yeah, that led to, uh, me writing, I had written these songs, uh, that were, you know, I'd met John and to be perfectly honest, I was kind of overcome with all of these feelings that I didn't know how to make sense of. And he just walked into the room and now he's kind of shaking his booty like, yeah, baby. Um, <laughs> and I started writing these songs, the wheel sleeping in Paris, the wheel and sleeping in Paris. And, um, I went to John, I moved to New York and I went to see Leo Kotke at the old club, the bottom line one night. And I was just, you know, bottomed out. My whole life was upended. And I wrote these lyrics on a napkin. I know that sounds like a trope, but I did. Seventh Avenue, right? Yeah, I wrote the lyrics to Seventh Avenue, and I thought this could be a way into John Lovett. <laughs> so <laughs> I said to him, "Do you want to write the music to these lyrics?" And that was the first song we wrote together, and that's on the wheel. And you explained to John that the, the music, the stories on this album were were elemental themes of fire and water, wind and rain, a wind and moon. Yeah, I said they're very elemental, and they have. And violently so, you know, storms, fire, all kinds of nature metaphors. And uh, he said, well, yeah, but are they good songs? (laughs) (laughs) I said, yeah, they are. So I asked him to produce an album of these songs, and he said, I'll co-produce it with you. And that's what we did. And there's a wonderful story you've told before about uh, before you started work on the album, you were doing a, a single version of uh, From the Ashes for a compilation album. And you, you talk about in your book uh, this turning point in your life when John plugged in that Telecaster to play his guitar part, plugged it right into the board and, and you wrote everything fell away from him and everything changed. I still remember that moment of sitting by him and watching him play his guitar from a foot away and just go into that space where there was nothing else except what he was playing and what he was listening to, you know, to watch him go into that space and to follow him into that space. I mean, you know, I could get very um, kind of treacly talking about this, but it was so powerful. I mean, my life was turned inside out and I fell in love with this man and we made this album and we fell completely in love making the album. I mean, he took longer than I did. I had to talk him into falling in love with me and I did a really <laughs> good job. <laughs> You've said that uh, the title song, The Wheel, which is, is one of those that uh, people demand that you perform when yeah. you're doing it live. But, but you've talked about a sense of urgency in writing that song. Yeah, I mean, 
you know, when you feel your life is about to be transformed and it's so confusing, you can't see the future. And yet, yeah, I felt overcome by a sense of urgency to write these songs. Like I, I, I couldn't live with them being in an amorphous form inside me. I don't know if that makes sense, mm. but they were like pushing through. I had to, there was an urgency about them. I mean, you know, Rich, some, this could all start sounding very self-referential and grand, but the truth is it's a record about transformation because I was being transformed. And it's a record about falling in love because I was falling in love. And people, it resonates with people. I can't tell you the comments I've gotten about the wheel, you know, this this upcoming release and what it meant to people. And um, I, I actually had no idea it meant that much to people from what I'm reading. And yeah, after sh I hear often after a show, if I didn't play the wheel, they go, you didn't play the wheel, you know. <laughs> well, the, you know, yeah. it's an album that meant a lot to me at an important time in my life as well and the, and the song the title cut the wheel to me something about that song both the lyrics but but the music as well there is a sense of of empowerment and and freedom that comes from that song uh oh, the, that wow, you're that's so true. yeah you know, you're exploring this brand new world and, and we're going along for the ride and and on our own journey of exploration it's interesting because the freedom in that song and i agree it, it, there is a lot of freedom i felt with fear and confusion because I didn't know how that was going to play out. Turns out that it played out well because here we are together 30 years later. Um, but also what you're hearing too is Stuart Smith's incredible mm. guitar part. Uh, and what's interesting, that guitar part is so difficult. It's not enhanced in any kind of artificial way. That is him doing that with his fingers. And there are only three people I've met in the world who can do it. John is not one of them. He, you know, plainly admits that he can't do it. Uh, Larry Campbell can do it. Great musician. Uh, Stuart. And a stagehand in Sydney, Australia, who I met. <laughs> <laughs> We're talking with Roseanne Cash here on Downtown. Uh, the song Seventh Avenue, you talked about uh, how that uh, came to be, and you were you were living in the village at the time, right, with a, an apartment that overlooks Seventh Avenue? Yeah, I had moved from a 6,000 square foot house in Nashville into a tiny apartment in Greenwich Village. Uh, it was at the corner of Morton Street and Seventh Avenue, and it looked over Seventh Avenue. And um, yeah, you know, I felt moments of true despair. Getting a divorce is incredibly painful, as um, a lot of people know. And I didn't know how things were going to turn out. And I wrote those lyrics that night at the bottom line. I am not a lighthouse, not the answer or the truth. Uh, this was for anybody who says, well, yes, this was a very romantic thing. But it was a, there was an, an honesty there as well that neither one of you offered answers just maybe more questions yeah that's you know that uh that line from rilke in letters to a young poet you must love the questions uh, cha <laughs> change partners i mean yes the, the title says it all in many ways but uh, you explained it recently uh on, on your instagram feed that it was like breaking down a model in physics so you can reassemble it in, in a more, I guess, effective version. Yeah. 
It's true. You know, that um, that metaphor has served me well over my life when things did feel like they were falling apart. And to, you know, I'm a, I'm a natural optimist, very optimistic. And that helped me frame things that were incredibly painful or felt like falling apart. It's like, well, it has to happen in order for something not necessarily more evolved or prettier or happier, but something that's more true to form. And I think I saw recently that you said you know, your first marriage didn't, it didn't fail. It ran its course and, and that happens. People change over the course of their lives and, and they, they have a need for something different that they can't get from that relationship. It's so true. You know, I think Rodney and I grew up together. We yeah, you were, what, 23 when you got married? Yeah, 23. We grew up together. We learned a lot from each other. Um, I got my daughters. And I don't mean to diminish the power and depth of that relationship, and I have a lot of respect for our marriage and for him. But it was almost like an egg timer went off. Like, this is done. It was so clear to me. I have completed this. Let's talk about sleeping in Paris. Uh, is it a fantasy of a new life or acknowledging the death the of the old one? It's acknowledging the death of the old one. I mean, there was one little glimmer of like, we were about to go to Paris and there was this glimmer of like, could it be fixed? And if it can't, then I send you a blessing and thank you for what I learned. All right, you won't let me in. I don't know uh, how many how many mixtapes I have included that song really? <laughs> through oh the years, <laughs> but but so many. Um, and John's arrangement is so great on it. It gives it such a such a strong groove too to go with those powerful lyrics. Well, I think the lyrics became more powerful because of his powerful groove. You know, because I wrote that song like a folk song on my guitar, and I I gave it to him. And he sat with it, and then he came up with that groove, which turned it into a totally, turned it into what it should have been. Totally, you know, because there is an urgency of that one, too. It's like, let me in, you know, let your walls down. We can do this. Uh, Bruce- you can get, you're getting the, you're getting the, um, <laughs> the idea that I led. <laughs> John said that I picked him out of a lineup. <laughs> Yeah, but but you've also talked about the fact that um, oh, I, I don't I, I think the idea of you know, complementary personalities can can be exaggerated a little bit, and yet there were there were characteristics, maybe strengths we could call them that that you had that John didn't possess, and he had some that that yeah. didn't work so well for you, and together you you found that magic, that thing that's allowed it to continue for more than three decades and grow. Yeah, but, you know, we had to go through that long period of thinking, well, you need to be more like me. I need to, <laughs> you know, you need to copy who I am. And then eventually you realize that, well, we realize we're so different and that our strengths and weaknesses do fit together well in the studio and in life. Uh, from the Ashes, also a, a great song from the album, and, and I think made so much better by the wonderful work of Bruce Coburn. 
Oh, God, I adore Bruce Coburn, that voice, right? And then he just he just kind of slipped into it like a dream there at the end of the song. Well, you had so many talented people, Bruce, Mark Cohn, uh, Mary Chapin, uh, the, the great Ben Montench on the album. It was just a terrific collection of talented people. Yeah, it was. And I... Um, I was awed by all of them. I learned a lot. That was the, really the first time I got to know Mark Benmont. I had known for quite some time, you know, and then, you know, what Stuart Smith brought to it too. And, and Chapin, I remember um, Chapin came up to sing on the wheel and I have this still clear memory of her, of of her going into the vocal booth and standing back from the mic about two feet and just letting her voice soar on those backgrounds, you know, it was so beautiful. It was such an inspiring thing to see. Uh, my my favorite song, I think we've talked about it before. My favorite on the album is The Truth About You. Oh, that one just cuts me right open here. And it was uh, it was you seeing the possibilities, uh, both of a relationship, but of John as a person. That, it's one of my favorites, too. It's so intimate. Uh, to the point of, you know, I sometimes feel like, oh, my God, this is revealing a lot. But it's content mirroring context as well, because it's only the two of us on that track. Uh, we wrote it together. I wrote the lyrics and he wrote the music. It's in the tradition of those old folk songs that we both love. And it's so completely honest. Uh, is it Stuart's guitar work on Tears Falling Down? Gotta love that part. Oh my God, I'd have to look at the liner notes. I <laughs> thought it was John. I think it's John. Well, maybe it's it? John. Well, whoever it is, it well, it's great. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, I love that song too. Although John now says, oh, I could have done a better arrangement. Yeah. You know, he's always... He's always like picking apart what he could have done better. Actually, I do that too. But. <laughs> <laughs> and, and another one that the lyrics are so powerful, but musically, uh, to me, right from the first note of Roses in the Fire, something about that arrangement just, even before I hear the lyrics, just yells defiance. Oh, that's, that is the angriest song I ever wrote. <laughs> it's, it's so pissed off. <laughs> and uh, that was... I don't think Rodney would mind if I told you that, you know, that was directed at him. It was in that time period when everything was falling apart with us. And honestly, I did throw his roses in the fire. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, hey, more fire analogies on a fire of the newly alive, different kind of fire. Yeah, well, I told you a lot of violent nature metaphors. Mm. You know, I don't overuse metaphors anymore because I used them all on the wheel. <laughs> <laughs> well, Fire of the Newly Alive, you know, that's about passion and sex. And, you know, it's kind of obvious. And uh, the album closes with the wonderful If There's a God on My Side. And yeah, you lay it right out there. I'm, I'm falling deeper than I thought I would go. Yeah. And, and yet it feels both hopeful and there's despair in that. But, uh, you know, it's interesting. My dad called me after he heard the wheel. And he said, I just realized why God is a woman to you. Because I refer to God as she mm. in that song. 
I said, why, Dad? And he said, because you have daughters. Oh, wow. Isn't that sweet and wonderful? Oh, that's incredible. Yeah. And, and I love what he said. You mentioned in the book uh, when you let him know you were marrying John. Finally, finally, right? <laughs> He said, oh, I've been waiting 40 years for one of my daughters to marry a Jew. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I'm curious from, from the artist, from the writer's point of view, how does it happen? And how does it feel when something that is so personal to you connects with so many people on, on, on such a powerful level that 30 years, this album still resonates with so many of us? Well, I, I hope so, and that's very flattering to think of that. But, you know, it's like you think that you are the only one to have this experience, that you're unique in humanity. We're not. Those really personal experiences, those resonate the deepest. You know, themes don't resonate and kind of, uh, you know, outside yourself ideas that aren't rooted in feeling, but those personal experiences that are somehow elevated by a rhyme scheme and a backbeat and a melody, those those touch people. I mean, it does me. You know, there are certain songs I listen to over and over for different moods, mm -hmm. and they always arouse that certain feelings in me. And I, I know it's the same. We're We're the same. This is a place we connect. That's the beauty of music is connection. No matter what language you speak, it's the language behind language. So we know what the album did for you personally, and you and John still going strong, but professionally too, it marked such a turning point in your career. And I, yeah, I felt like this was the point where, where you took ownership of your mu music in more ways than one. Very true. Well, the, uh, Interiors is when I started taking ownership. I produced that album. It was a vision I had. I wrote all the songs. It was a, I executed a certain vision for a dark acoustic record. The Wheel had more power. It was more urgent to use that word again. It was there was freedom in it, and you know all of the above that we just talked about. But um, I, it didn't. It wasn't commercially that successful, but it found its audience, mm. which is all you can really hope for a record. Yeah, and, and here we are today, uh, 30 years later, and the music business is so fragmented now, and, and you're starting your own imprint, your own label. What are your hopes for the music going forward? Because you've got this 30th anniversary remaster, and then I am so excited to hear John's solo album coming out in January where do you hope this will lead the two of you musically? Um, I don't, I mean, we do what we do. We're writing songs right now. Um, we're working on this musical. I think I told you mm. about before Norma Ray, six years into that, hoping to get staged next year. Um, so, I mean, I don't want this just to become a legacy label where it's just, I'm releasing my old masters because as you said, John's got his first solo record coming out January 26. It's beautiful record. At some point, maybe other artists we would put out. Um, I don't know. It's, you know, the future feels exciting to me at my age. And as long as I've been doing this, I am not burnt out. I'm not bored. I'm, I'm still really excited. 
Yeah, but we've talked about your desire to spend a little less time on the road, and yeah, <laughs> and who wouldn't want to do that? And, and does this also give you the opportunity to explore a, a different a different part of your uh, your love of music? You said it. You said it. I mean, being on the road is grueling, and um, yeah, I definitely want to do less of it. I wrote a piece about that for the Atlantic. Mm. magazine during the pandemic it's called i will miss what i wanted to lose right and it was wonderful and thank you and i you know it's like the conflict in me of the beauty of connection with an audience and the grueling nature of the lack of sleep and the constant travel and dragging myself through airport after airport you know and finding myself in a airport parking lot at midnight to get to a you know chain hotel so you know what i mean all of it it was it's really hard well i told you what what we need and i man, i will, I will come from maine i'll do that journey in a heartbeat to see roseanne and john doing a springsteen like show on broadway you're the second person who has said that to me this week <laughs> <laughs> all right i guess it's in the ether there you go. i have to start thinking about it well, I'm, I'm so excited. Uh, I, I got the notification yesterday that my uh, my music is on the way from Roseanne Cash. So I'm looking forward to hearing the, the remastered version of The Wheel. I, I loved it so much, and I can't wait to hear what you've done with it. Now I wish I may have to order it anyway. Now I wish I had it on vinyl. It's worth buying a new turntable just for that. Well, it was never released on vinyl. Right. You know, back in 93, we were not making vinyl. And uh, one thing that people can get is a double vinyl album. And the second vinyl uh, record is a live performance from Austin City Limits right. from the when I performed The Wheel and from the Columbia Radio Hour with uh, Bruce Coburn, David Byrne, and Lucinda Williams. I love that. I, I was listening the other day to a couple of songs from that Columbia really? record. Yeah, yeah. Oh my gosh, yeah. That was fun. And, you know, I, I had completely forgotten that all four of us were together on that. Well, all five with John and how much fun that was. Does that still exist? I don't think so, does it? I don't think what so. I, I, I've tracked it down on YouTube and listened to it. Oh, my gosh. Well, I got a notification that my album is coming as well. And I looked at it <laughs> and I went, did I order an album from my own web store? <laughs> Well, you got to make sure the system works, right? That's yeah, a, I guess so. Testing the system it's out. All about quality control at Rumble Strip. <laughs> oh my God! You just made me realize I need to get a quality control officer for Rumble Strip. I guess that's me. Yeah, yeah. Until somebody else comes along, yeah. One more hat that you get to wear <laughs> in this uh, brave new world. Well, uh, Roseanne, it's great talking with you as always. Hope you have a wonderful Thanksgiving. Are you, you going to see? Uh, any of the younger members of the family for the holiday? I am. My daughter and son-in-law and uh, their two babies are coming up for Thanksgiving from Nashville. I'm so excited. And, um, yeah, we'll be around. We'll be in the city. And it's always a pleasure to speak with you, too, Rich. You're always so um, just present and deep and attentive and informed. It is available now, the special 30th anniversary remastered edition of The Wheel. The great Roseanne Cash with us here on Downtown. We'll take a break for a word from Cross Insurance. And when we come back, author David Baldacci takes us to the edge.
Since its founding in 1954, Cross Insurance has grown from a small family-owned agency that started in Bangor, Maine, into one of the largest super regional insurance agencies in New England. With the network of offices throughout New England, Cross Insurance works with top carriers to provide maximum value to you, your family, and your business. We are proud to be the official insurance broker of the New England Patriots and would welcome the chance to provide security for your team. For more information, visit CrossInsurance.com. Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Roseanne Cash and the wheel right there. Back on uh, downtown, the podcast, David Baldacci, one of the most widely read authors on the planet. Global number one best-selling author. His books are published in over 45 languages and more than 80 countries with 150 million copies sold worldwide. His brand new book is entitled The Edge, takes place right here in the state of Maine, and we had a chance to talk with David Baldacci all about it. Hi there, David. How are you today? I'm fine. How are you doing? I'm doing great, thank you. Appreciate you uh, making some time for us again. Oh, absolutely. Well, uh, I love the book. Finished it up last night, and uh, I know I had a great time reconnecting with Travis Devine. What made you want to spend more time with him? He's, you know, he's a character um, that I just feel has a lot of uh, fuel on th- in the tank left. And I started out with him in the 620 Man, and I sort of built him to sort of be dropped in any, any place in the world and to see if he could ferret out the truth and figure it out and also survive at the same time. And, and he just has that ability about him. But, you know, he's a very physical guy, trained as an Army Ranger, so he can do all of that stuff. But... He's also a human being, and this showed, you know, I think the softer, more human side of him and many elements, people he meets in the small town and, and the things he has to go through, and um, it just was a different side of him. And so I bring characters back because I feel they have more room to evolve and they have more things to show the readers. I think Devon definitely has a lot left. As a writer, what's the advantage of, of working with a, a well-known pre-existing character? Well, for one thing, you know, I don't have to go out and reinvent, you know, a character every single time. Mm. I can come back to him, you know, give a little bit of a pass so the readers who might not have read previous books understand the character. But at the same time, then I've got this, I've got this template of a character, and then I could start. It's almost like a, a painting where you can, uh, you know, you're trying to fill out all the corners and all the rest of the, the the hues and and every angle to this character. So for him, he's kind of an unfinished sort of thing right now. And with each book that I write about him, I can finish out more and more of him to let people get into his head, into what he's all about, what he's thinking, believing, feeling, what he wants out of life. Um, and every book, I have an opportunity to take another swipe at him and to make him more clear to the re- to the reader. Now, do you find you also have to go back and then check some of the background and make sure that you're consistent with what you've told us about him in the past? Absolutely. I, I do that with all the books. Some of the ones I've written seven, eight, nine different books about, there's a lot of ground to cover. So I try to keep notes on different things um, as I go forward, but I do go back and reread because I, I want to be consistent because if I'm not, I will get emails from people that say, <laughs> hey, you know, in this book you said this, blah, blah, blah. So 
uh, I try hard. You know, I'm only human. I'm sure that I make mistakes along the way, but I try hard not to make mistakes. Well, uh, you dropped Travis into the little town of Putnam, Maine. And uh, for those of us in Maine certainly recognize uh, a number of people and a number of situations. And really, in, in a lot of ways, Putnam becomes a character in the story. It does. Um, I've been all over Maine. You know, I, my cousin John was a governor up there for a while and a congressman as well. I've been, when my kids were little, we would take them to a gunquit in the wells. We had some friends who had a beach house up there. My wife's um, grandparents were French Canadian. They lived in Madawaska and up at Fort Kent. So I've, I've gone up all the way up as high as you can go where, you know, the sign says, get off of 95, it's ending. And then get off of Route 1, it's ending. <laughs> and you keep driving. So, um, and I was up in Maine um, this year in Kennebunkport for a fundraiser for the public library system. And last year I was up there um, for another fundraiser that I gave. And it really, uh, I hadn't been to Maine for a few years, and I got really re-energized about Maine. I just hadn't been there and seeing the place, seeing the ocean, seeing the, the towns. And when I was thinking about the new Travis Devine book, I was like, you know, you've got a fresh look at Maine again. Let's do Maine, because I wanted a rugged isolated place in the, in, in the wintertime, um, small town uh, near the coast, and it fit all those elements. And I named it Putnam um, because when we first went up to Maine and we would rent a house on the beach up there, uh, we rented from a family called the Putnams. So I was like, okay, I like that name, so I'm going to create a town. I'm going to call it Putnam, Maine. That's perfect. And, and I love the line because it applies, well, to, to the ocean, but to Putnam and to a lot of places in Maine, the ocean always has surprises in store for you. <laughs> it absolutely does. I mean, small towns, you know, people think, well, the, the big city is complicated and so many millions of people teeming souls there. I said, well, they've got nothing on small towns. Small town secrets are hidden really, really well. No, I'm not talking about it. It doesn't have to do with the quantity. It has to do with the quality of the secrets. And I would put small towns up against anything out there. And uh, Putnam has more than its share. We're talking with David Baldacci about his brand new book, The Edge, a 620 man thriller. So many great characters in the book, too. Uh, Jenny Silkwell, and I, I don't want to give away too much, but uh, a great character, CIA operative. And when Travis digs into her past, he, he learns a number of things. She's not very easy to work with, and yet I think he describes her uh, as the perfect formula for an ops officer. Yeah, it really is. She's indomitable. She's relentless. <clears throat> she doesn't, you know, suffer fools gladly. And for her, it's all about mission, mission success at the end of the day, and she will do whatever she has to do to get to that end result. She pushes people the wrong way, and she doesn't really care because that's not her problem. Um, and that does make her a great case manager um, because you have to be relentless and you have to be indomitable and you have to. And there's always going to be challenges. And you have to push through every single one of them. Um, and that's who she was. Interesting about Jenny is, you know, we never see her on the page alive. Everything mm. we learn about her is posthumously. But she's a very important character in the book in, in any number of ways, uh, particularly with a connection to the siblings she left behind, Dak and Alex. So she's very much front and center in this novel, even though she's dead by the time we meet her. I, I love the character of Earl. Uh, we, we've all met Earl if you've spent any time in Maine. He is a great <laughs> slice of coastal Maine. He really is. I wanted. I just wanted to make sure that people understood that because I've met many Earls in my life as well. You know, a, a man of the sea who sees the way he spent his life disappearing. Um, and knows that generations coming up are not going to be able to have that opportunity or that advantage for lots of different reasons. Um, he's led a tough life, but he's led a, one of honor and dignity. Um, never made a whole lot of money, but raised a family, had a wonderful marriage, 
but now I've suffered a lot of personal losses, and things are coming to home now, and the past is coming back. And, you know, we all have those types of things in our lives. It may not be as dramatic as what I write about in the ads, but we've all had stuff that we've done that we regret and that we feel guilty about and that we fear maybe might come back someday to haunt us. That's just part of being human. You know, if you, I've never met a, a perfect human. I don't think I would mm. want to. I would take somebody who's fallen and failed over someone who's absolutely perfect because I, I couldn't stand being around the person. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you know, to me, that's as a reader, that's what makes your characters so great and so believable because there are no, there are no black and white characters, much like the, there are no black and white people. There are so many shades of gray. There really are, and that's what makes people fascinating. I mean, that's that's the sweet spot right there about what makes us as human beings is fascinating because you could have someone who seems like a really nice person and is a nice person, but have an element to them that, you know, they did something once or twice that was not good, and they feel guilty about it, but they also try to keep moving forward because they don't want to revisit it. They maybe don't want to suffer the consequences for it, but that might heighten their guilt. So there's just emotional whiplash throughout a lot of different people. And again, we can all relate to that because, you know, it's happened to all of us in varying degrees, and that's what makes human beings fascinating. We're not static at all. We're always evolving, and things are never what they seem. You are, are so prolific, and, I, and I, I was thinking about this last night. I, I feel like you and, and the guy who owns our station, Stephen King, you guys are like uh, you're like McCartney and Jagger. You know, you keep doing it and, and doing it at a high level, and I, I feel like it must be in your nature that you couldn't really ever just sit back and, and not do what you do. No, I mean, you look at a guy like Stephen King, what, what an incredible career, an icon in, 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 the, in, the, in the book field. Um, I would imagine that if you told him he could never write any more stories, he would feel like somebody had just chucked him out of a spacecraft and he's floating through space with no oxygen because that's who he identifies as. That's what he does. That's why he gets up every morning. And I feel the same way, you know, that if I, I'm at my unhappiest when I'm between stories. You know, people talk about, well, I finished the book. I'm going to go take a break for like six months and not think about it. I'm like, <laughs> I don't know. I'm, I'm like, what am I going to do next? Um, because otherwise I have this enormous vacuum in my life. And vacuums are not good because sometimes they get filled up with bad stuff. So I, people say, when are you going to stop writing? And I said, well, when I'm all said and done, when it's over mm. and they, you know, put me in the ground. Because otherwise there's no reason for me to walk away from something that I identify as. Well, the other thing that uh, you have done so well along with your wife, Michelle, is is to do good works and, and help others all around the country. Uh, the Wish You Well Foundation has done such a tremendous job. And I was, it was reading on the website, and I was, I was stunned to read this, that over 130 million people struggle with the ability to read in this country. <clears throat> yeah, they do. And the problem's only getting worse. I mean, you look across the country now, and reading scores are plummeting for kids all across the spectrum, all across every state. And I think a part of it is, um, you know, we don't put enough money into education and to literacy. Uh, we just assume that it'll happen. But literacy dominates our lives. It will determine how successful we're going to be, um, how much we will earn during the course of our lives, how good the lives will be of our children or not, whether we're going to be homeless or hungry or impoverished or criminal, um, because literacy is tied to all of those social ills. And if we could eradicate illiteracy, most of those social ills would completely go away, which would be priceless, I would think. But our, our other problem is that people don't read books anymore. You know, they don't read nearly at the level they used to. We have a small, compact number of people who read consistently, but most people, by and large, do not read books anymore. Social media is <clears throat> narrowing their attention span, so people have a difficult time absorbing one page, uh, much less 400 pages in the novel. 
Um, so they get lost on TikTok feeds or Instagram, and uh, that's where their attention span ends. And our brains are built for the long haul. They're built, built for doing long-haul duty where, you know, we get better at stuff the more we think about it. Uh, we are not built. We, make, we make really bad decisions, and we make decisions fast based on really, really narrow evidence. Um, but that's where our society is going these days, unfortunately. So Wish You Well Foundation, we fund as many programs as we can. We pour millions of dollars into this because in a way, every dollar we put in, we're going to get $10,000 back in return as far as the impact positively on human beings. Well, I applaud the work you do. I, I've been a high school teacher for more than 30 years, and, and there's no there's no greater determinant than future success or failure in school uh, than seeing those kids who come in, in in early grades and beyond and struggle with reading. Because if you don't have that mastered, you have difficulty with every other area of your education. You're absolutely right. And I applaud you because you have one of the most important jobs in the world because you're actually teaching future generations. Um, but you're absolutely right. It, it, that one skill, if you lack it, it doesn't really matter what other skills you have in life. Um, you're never going to be make up, make up for that deficit, and it's going to impact every element of your life going forward and your kids' lives going forward, too, because if you're illiterate or your literacy challenges, chances are almost 95% that your kids are going to suffer the same fate. And the wonderful work you do uh, partnering with Feeding America, with uh, Feeding Body and Mind, uh, again, uh, helping get books to food banks, and, and that important connection that you've made and the idea that uh, undernourished minds go hand-in-hand hand often with empty bellies. They do. I mean, illiteracy and poverty are, are uh, very closely tied together. So if you're literacy challenged, chances are you, you seek food assistance as well. Um, and what we try to do is people going to seek food and bring food home they need to survive to eat. Um, they can, we can stimulate and feed their mind. At the same time, they can bring books home. I've never seen a bad result from a book being in a home. I've seen many bad results from no books being in a home. And there are too many homes across this country that never had a book cross its threshold, which is very, very sad, obviously. If we could just turn that one thing around in this country, we would have a far better country. Well, thanks for all the wonderful work uh, you and Michelle and uh, everybody in the foundation do. And uh, thanks again for another terrific read, The Edge, a 620-man thriller. If you loved Travis Devine, he's back, and you'll love the story set right here in the state of Maine. Uh, David Baldacci, great to talk with you again. Thanks for making time for us. Thank you. I always enjoy it. I appreciate it very much for the opportunity. David Baldacci talking about his terrific new book, The Edge, here on Downtown. Our thanks to David, thanks to Roseanne Cash, and to you for checking in with us this week. We're brought to you every week by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Downtown is produced by Kerry Haskell. We'll catch you next time right here on Downtown, the podcast.